just a few minutes, we're going to be in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 16 uh, through 18. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, if you'd like to go ahead and, and find your way there um, in, in your Bible or using the Bible app or, or whatever it is that you might be using. I want to put a plug in for our website. I've been working on redesigning it and, and that sort of thing. So uh, we also, uh, now the, the messages should be, when we're going live like this, they should be appearing on our website and we have the notes and stuff in there. And, and uh, you can also find our notes on our website if you'd like to ever do that. Uh, we've, we've updated it so the notes uh, for the messages are uh, on there. Um, so uh, every week uh, the notes will be on there, but we don't have it to where you can go back and look at past notes. So, but you can email the notes to yourself. So that's always, that's always good. But anyway, just a little plug uh, for you. Uh, perhaps in school at some point in time, you had to read some of Aesop's fables. Fables uh, were fictitious stories and they were often used for the purpose of giving some sort of moral instruction. Now, uh, a fable and a parable are not the same thing. The parable, uh, for one, the parable always relates what actually takes place and is true to fact when a fable is not. And secondly, the parable teaches uh, the higher heavenly and spiritual truths, but the fable teaches earthly moral truths. Why do I bring this up? Well, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone about Christ in which you would maybe say something like uh, like this. You would say um, uh, that Jesus has changed your life. And, um, and they would say something like this. I know that Jesus works for you, but I just think it's a fairy tale or a good story. I'm more into fill in the blank. Now, whatever it is that they are into could be really anything. It could be how to achieve their greatest potential in life. It could be some weird religious cult. We don't know. Perhaps uh, you would respond to this person by saying, let me tell you just how Jesus has changed my life. And oftentimes people will respond, uh, will listen to you and, and listen to your whole story and um, on how Jesus changed your life. And they'll say, that's, that's great for you. Um, and uh, but that's not for me. I'm happy for you, but but I found great help in whatever it is. Uh, they want to tell you what they found great help in. Let me ask you this: Why should anyone believe in Jesus over anything else? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why should anybody believe in Jesus over? Buddha or anything else in life? Do you know the answer? Because gone are the days when we just tell people how great Jesus is and then they believe it. Like, oh, well, wonderful. Jesus is, Jesus is great. We saw a video of an IMB missionary. Guess what? If he only focuses on how great Jesus is, it's going to do him no good. I'm glad those days are gone because those days bred Christians 
or at least so-called Christians who knew very little about their faith in Jesus Christ. The truth is, people will talk about all kinds of things, on, on things that have changed their life. And are we so naive as Christians to think that people do not rely on other things or are not able to point to other things for a changed life? Some people will share their testimony of how their multi-level marketing plan changed their lives faster than they will share about how Jesus changed their life. If you have ever been to a conference for one of these one of these things, you know that they will bring person after person up on stage to give their testimony of how their life has been dramatically and drastically changed. Not by Jesus, but by something else. And when I look around the landscape of our current culture, I'm compelled to ask the question, how do you know that your faith in Christ is true? If someone points to something else that works for them, does that make what they believe as equally valid as your belief? Because it works for them. So then is it equally valid as Christianity? In other words, what makes our faith different from anything else? For far too long, we've pointed to personal experience as the deciding factor for the Christian faith. And we say, like I said this morning, often, Jesus changed my life. And while I hope that Jesus has changed your life, I also hope that you see your faith as more substantial than Jesus changed my life. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, many others can point to changed lives. How do we know that biblical Christianity is the only truth that will give us the right to be with God forever, to give us eternal life? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, the Apostle Peter gives us two proofs that our faith is not a fable. They are first the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ in verses 16 through 18, and secondly, the written prophetic revelation of God in Scripture in verses 19 through 21. We have the apostolic witness in the New Testament, so these two elements make one proof, which is the Word of God, but today I want to only look at this apostolic witness in verses 16 uh, through 18. I believe what Peter is saying is, is the reason we know that our faith is not a fable is because of the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. Peter is laying this foundation before he goes into chapter 2 and deals with these false teachers that were plaguing the earthly church. And one of the heirs of these false teachers was that they denied the apostolic teaching that Jesus would return bodily to earth. In fact, they scoffed at the idea. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as a word from the beginning of creation, is what we'll read in chapter 3, verse 4. So in our text, Peter boldly counters these scoffers. And so if you're willing and able, I would ask that you please stand out of respect for God's word, as we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For we did not follow 
cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Show us this morning just how true our faith is. Help us be armed with how true our faith is. To understand why Christianity is so different than anything else on the face of this earth. And why it is that we follow the resurrected Savior. Speak to our hearts for your saints are listening this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. That word for, from verse 16, connects the thought with Peter's previous words. The sense of what Peter is saying is that I want you always to be able to recall these things after I'm gone because they are true and we did not make up fables, but we were eyewitnesses of what we were handing off to you. And so we have this apostolic witness to Jesus Christ as the very foundation of our faith. And there are four things I want us to see this morning from these verses. First, the apostles deny making up fables. The apostles deny making up fables. Here's the question. Is Peter responding uh, to the false teachers that he was following cleverly devised myths? Or is he referring to cleverly devised myths of the false teachers in contrast to his eyewitness testimony or the eyewitness testimony of the apostles? It is possible uh, that there's a little bit of both going on here. The false teachers were accusing the apostles of following cleverly devised myths, and but Peter is turning it back on them. And he's saying, we're not uh, the ones following these myths, but rather the false teachers are the ones following these myths. These apostles are following and proclaiming what we have seen and heard as apostles. That's what we are doing. In verses 12 through 15, Peter uses the first person pronoun, I, but in verses 16 and 18, he shifts it to a plural, we. So what is he doing? He's bringing in the testimonies of the apostles, in particular Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18, he uses we ourselves. It's, it's emphatic. Peter is making it clear that it is not a subjective vision or some subjective dream that he uh, experienced rather it was an actual experience that Peter James and John all saw and all heard Peter explicitly denies that they are making up or following after cleverly devised myths or fables in that day and in every age there were religious charlatans who made a nice living by claiming to have some new revelation that would help their followers get whatever they wanted. These false teachers often would burst on the scene, charging exorbitant amounts of money for the services as well, as we will see in uh, chapter two, verse 15. 
As we have seen in recent times, these false teachers often would use uh, their followers for sexual gratification. And it was the same in the Bible as we will see in chapter 2, verses 14 and 18. They lure people in with promises of, of such things as freedom from their problems as we will see in chapter 2, verse 19. However, their teaching is false and their promises are empty and they leave people ruined because they overpromise and they underdeliver. The word translated myths was often used in the Greek culture to refer to the stories about the Greek gods. These stories were not literally true, but they often contained a message with helpful instruction. They were exactly like fables with a moral lesson. Paul used this word negatively to, to refer to false teachers. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. He warned uh, Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. There is nothing wrong with grandma or grandpa telling the story of Little Red Riding Hood to the little kids, but it's not true. It's not a true story. It had no place in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many churches have taken things that are not biblical, that are not true based upon scripture, and they've incorporated these non-truths into their church. Far too often, we've taken the things that are of the world, and we've written that into our church constitution or our church bylaws, and we've made it commonplace to the point that it becomes tradition in the church and we could care less whether it honored God, whether it was biblical, or whether it was faithful to the word of God. Amen. And then we are uh, confronted with such unbiblical practice. We hear the good old Baptist words, right? You know what those are. Well, we've always done it this way. <laughs> That's the good old Baptist words. We've always done it this way. Listen to what Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Titus was a pastor, and this is Paul's advice. Paul's referring to the unbelieving Jews who are adding all these embellishments to the Old Testament stories. Listen to Paul's final charge to Timothy, where he's strongly encouraging Pastor Timothy to preach the word. And then he adds, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Oh, church, I am fearful that so many churches are already there. They've wandered off into myths. And when confronted with the truth, 
with confronted with the biblical truth to say when 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 a pastor or a teacher says, well, this is not this is not how we should be doing things. This is not how we how we should be proclaiming the gospel. This is we should be looking at the word of God and let that be our guide and instruction. When they're confronted, they get rid of that teacher to bring in a new teacher that will tell them exactly what they want to hear. So their ears are tickled, so they never feel confronted, so they never have to really deal with issues. And every time we have, we have Paul here in the New Testament contrasting truth with myth. Myths are made up stories or fables. They're not true. They don't come from God's word. The truth refers to God's revelation through his chosen apostles and prophets as recorded in the word of God in John 17, 17, we see this. The truth is supremely focuses on God's revelation in his son who said in John 18, 37, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. He also said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth about Jesus is made known to us through the witness of the apostles. They were not making up fables. Rather, they were reporting to us what they saw and what they heard. Secondly, the apostles' eyewitness account focuses on Jesus Christ, who is the glorious, majestic Son of God, equal with the Father. I know that's an extremely long point. It's a mouthful, but it's crucial to what Peter's saying here. He's referring to one specific occasion, namely when he and James and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We'll look more at that in a moment, but for now, I want you to see that Peter here exalts Jesus Christ as the glorious, majestic Son of God who is equal with the Father. The word majesty can also be translated splendor or greatness or magnificent. It's used once to refer to the greatness of God in Luke 9:43. And another time to the mouth of, uh, from the, in the mouth of Demetrius in the book of Ephesians, he was the uh, idol maker to refer to the, the great goddess Artemis, who was in danger of being dethroned from her magnificence. Here, Peter uses majesty to refer to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to him. Peter says that Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, whom Peter also identifies as the majestic glory, who said in verse 17, 117, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Glory refers to the shining brightness of Jesus's face and clothes. Honor refers to the words of approval that came from heaven. And just before the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know what happened? Jesus had predicted, uh, uh, made a prediction about his impending death on the cross. And what did Peter do? He rebuked him for such a thought. And what did Jesus do? Jesus rebuked Peter. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus went off to affirm that his disciples would have to deny themselves, take up the cross, and to follow him. And the disciples are confused. They're, if, they're like, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why on earth is Jesus talking about 
death on the cross. I thought that he was supposed to come and reign in power and glory on the throne of David. And it was in that context that Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here right now who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And immediately after, he, he uh, goes, we have the account of the sermon or of, of the Mount of Transfiguration where the three apostles are with Jesus and they see his glory, the same glory that he will have in his future kingdom. When the father said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, it identified Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. The, the phrase about Jesus being God's son comes from Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Peter here refers to the, the Mount of Transfiguration as the holy mountain because this is where they met with God. We do not know where it's at. Some believe it's somewhere on Mount Hermon. Psalm 2-7, the Messiah says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. The psalm goes on to promise to give the son the nations as his inheritance, and he will break them with a rod of iron. Uh, we, then we see that in Revelation 19.5. The part about Jesus being beloved and well-pleasing to the Father comes from the Messianic promise of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The Father says, Behold my servant, when I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nation. So in context, the experience of seeing Jesus transfigured told the confused disciples, Jesus is the glorious, majestic, promised Messiah and King. His impending death on the cross does not negate his future reign in power and glory. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He laid aside his own glory, took on human flesh through the virgin birth, and as such, he is truly God and he is truly man. And there is no sin in Jesus. He did not and could not surrender any of his divine attributes. If he did, he would have ceased to be God, which is an impossibility. However, he voluntarily laid aside the use of some of his divine attributes as he took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death, the death of the cross. And as Charles Wesley put it in that Christmas hymn that we like to sing, Hark the Herald, the Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's who Jesus is. And so it was on this occasion that the veil was lifted on the Mount of Transfigurations. The uh, Transfiguration, the disciples <coughs> saw the intrinsic glory of Jesus that he shared with the Father before the creation of the world. So it is that the Apostles' eyewitness account focuses on Jesus Christ, who is the glorious, majestic Son of God, who is equal with the Father. Third, the apostolic witness affirms Jesus is coming again in power and glory. The apostolic witness affirms that Jesus is coming again in power and glory. When Peter says in verse 16, we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Some commentators understand that to be a reference to Christ's first coming, where his power was revealed in his miracles and in this revelation on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when we 
we read it, it seems like that would make good sense. However, when we look at it in the Greek, there's this word there, that word coming is parousia, and it is always used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to Christ's second coming. Plus, we know that Peter's dealing with these false teachers, and what are they doing? What are they doing? They're scoffing at the idea of Christ's second coming. And so most commentators understand verse 16 to refer to his second coming. And that makes the meaning of verse 16 such that the apostles had not devised the idea of Christ's second coming as some sort of clever little myth. As we will see in just a moment, their, their experience on the Mount of Transfiguration was this prophetic glimpse of what it will be like when Jesus returns in power and glory. Jesus specifically predicted that he would come again to receive his followers unto himself in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. Also, we can remember when Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection. You remember what the disciples are doing? They're, they're standing there staring up into heaven and the angels come and said to the disciples as they stood there looking into heaven, Ben of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you've seen him go into heaven. Acts 1.11 Since Jesus ascended bodily, he will return bodily. Since he ascended visibly, he will return visibly. Since he ascended suddenly, he will return suddenly. Christians differ over many of the details of Christ's return, but all who believe that the Bible is the word of God affirm that he will indeed return bodily in power and glory to judge the wicked and bring final redemption and eternal glory to his people. Hebrews 9.28 All believers who have tasted of the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ, are waiting for that blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not a minor theme in the New Testament. This is not a, the second coming of Jesus is not a tertiary issue, but the events surrounding it and when it happens, except for that can be tertiary. We can have all kinds of disagreements on, on when it happens, and whether there's a rapture or not a rapture, and when is the millennium, all that. I mean, there's <coughs> a bazillion different views on that kind of stuff. Those part may be tertiary. But his coming again is not. If anyone denies the second coming of Christ, they deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a major part of biblical revelation. As his redeemed people, we should be living every single day in the hope of his coming. Longing for the day when he will appear, appear 2 Timothy 4.8. So we know the apostles, they specifically deny making up fables about Jesus, especially with reference to his second coming. The apostles have this eyewitness account that focuses on Jesus, who is the glorious, majestic Son of God, equal to the Father. The apostles witness, clearly affirm, Jesus is coming again in power and glory. And finally, number four, the apostles affirm their eyewitness account of the majesty of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. The apostles affirm their eyewitness account of the majesty of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. The apostles were a witness to the majesty and glory of Jesus from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension. As the Apostle John put it, 
In John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory as the Son of as the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Here's a question. Why does Peter then bring up the transfiguration as a prime example of seeing the majesty of Jesus rather than the resurrection or the ascension? For one, the transfiguration was the only time that Peter saw Jesus in his majesty and glory. In the book, book of Acts, we see Stephen looking into heaven and he sees uh, the glorified Jesus standing at the right hand of God in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. Paul saw the glory of Christ when he was blinded by the light on the road to Damascus and he heard the voice of the Lord in Acts chapter 9. Paul also had, the, um, ha had this great experience of being caught up into heaven where he heard the things which a man is not permitted to speak. John would later see the glory of Christ on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. But this was Peter's only experience of actually seeing the glory of Christ, and he could never forget it. With that said, Peter's main reason for referencing the transfiguration here is that it guarantees Christ's coming again in power and glory, which is what the false teachers were ridiculing. It was this brief prophetic display of what it will be like when the kingdom of God comes into power. If the transfiguration was a historical event, so the second coming is a historical event. Peter is not speaking of a spiritual coming. And while Jesus' first coming presents him as humble, gentle, suffering servant, his second coming will be as the conquering warrior who rules the nations with a rod of iron, judging all of his enemies. And as we consider this amazing revelation of Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, the question comes to mind, why did Jesus only pick Peter, James, and John to witness it? Can you, can, do you ever think about that? Like, why was it just Peter, James, and John? Can you imagine if something like that were to happen uh, today with a political leader? The press aides and, and handlers would make sure that there would be a huge stage for, uh, uh, for to have some big event and the stadium be packed, cameras rolling, so the whole world could see. But Jesus excludes nine of the 12 disciples. And then he tells the three who did see it not to say anything about it until after he had risen from the dead. We don't know the exact reason as to why the Lord limited this revelation to these three, but his choice reveals his abundant grace to sinners. Jesus had just rebuked Peter, right? He had just called him Satan. He also knew that Peter would deny him on the night before his crucifixion three times. James and John, you remember these guys? They're, they're clamoring and fighting about who's going to be first among the twelve. This is who Jesus picks to go to the Mount of Transfiguration and to see what happens. These three. And perhaps it's to teach us that if we know Jesus, it's not because we're worthy to know him. It's because it's not because of anything in us that causes me to be worthy to know Jesus, but rather we know him solely because of his grace. Also, the other disciples had to rely on the eyewitness of these three disciples. They required humility on their part. 
They had to set aside the pride that would have caused them to say, well, why do these three get special revelation? Why do these three get special treatment? They aren't any better than we are, and they would be right. Because none of them were better than the others. But God chose to reveal the glory of Christ to them, and the others had to accept their witness. And so do we. The question for you this morning is, have you done that? Have you accepted the witness of the apostles and know Christ as your Savior? There are some people that get confused when it comes to faith. Their thought is that faith is closing your eyes to all evidence and leaping blindly into the dark, hoping that somehow things will turn out well. That's not faith. That's stupidity. Faith is only as good as its object. You see, one could have faith in an airplane that's broken down and wrecked. Its wings are held together with some duct tape because you know duct tape fixes everything. And the motor barely runs. And someone could say, I have faith in that plane. But to get in a plane and let it fly you somewhere, that wouldn't be faith. That'd be dumb. You should only put your faith in a plane that shows evidence that can actually fly. Here's what we must understand in our text this morning. We have the eyewitness testimony of a man that spent more than three years with Jesus Christ. And for most of these three years, he saw the humanity of Jesus. He was with Jesus when Jesus fed 5,000. He was with Jesus when Jesus walked on the water. He was with Jesus when Jesus healed the sick. He was with Jesus when Jesus raised the dead. He saw Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus risen from the dead. He saw Jesus ascend into heaven with the angelic promise that he will one day come again in power and glory. The apostolic witness to Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith, believer. Man. When somebody says, what's the difference between Christianity and anything else? I have the witness of the Bible eyewitness accounts of the apostles that saw it, were there, witnessed it, and then wrote about it. It's not blind faith. So I ask you this morning, do you accept the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ? Have you bowed before his majesty? Have you trusted him as your Savior and Lord? If not, why not? There is more than sufficient evidence for your faith. And perhaps you would say this morning, well, how do I do that? How can I move past this idea of Jesus being a fable and placing my faith in Jesus? Well, you can, you can say a prayer and let God know that you're truly trusting in Christ as your Savior. You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen.
It's not magic. Christ saves you. If you call on him. It doesn't have to be that prayer. It's just a prayer saying, God, I trust you. I trust you that Jesus has come to save me. And if you said that prayer, you said something like it, I would love to follow up with you. Or you, you want to know more, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward at the end of the service. If you're online, you can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. Then that's the word faith to 309-328-3488. We'll send you a card. You can fill that out. You can do that in your pew even if you want to. I just want to follow up with you. <clears throat> Lastly, I want to ask you this. I want to speak to those of you who are believers. You know Christ as your Savior. Faith is not something that you have just to receive Christ. Like you, well, I just have to have faith to receive Christ and then it's done. I stop having faith. It doesn't work that way. And I wonder this morning about your faith. We started this morning with that point, the apostles deny making up fables. I wonder how trusting are you in God's word this morning? Do you really trust it? I found that so often as Christians, we, we are so good at giving the word lip service and saying that we trust in God's word, but then we don't. Practically, we don't. We, we say we trust it, but we need all this other stuff and all these opinions of man and all this other stuff to, to, to do what we need to do. Rather than saying, yes, I trust in God's word. Do you really trust it? You see, the Baptist Faith of Methodist 2000 tells us about the Bible. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of air for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard. Listen, the supreme, this is what we believe as Baptists, the supreme standard by which all, not some, by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All human conduct, all creeds, all religious opinions should be tried by the word of God. In other words, if it's not in there, if we cannot prove it by God's word, we should not be doing it. And so often our trust is in the opinion of man. Well, that sounds good. Let's just do that. Oh, church, may it never be so may we ask is this tried by god's word and if not let it go let's close it. <clears throat> father thank you for your word it's faithful it's true it speaks to our heart and our lives and lord for those that maybe listen to this message this morning or maybe they will listen to it another time those that are here Lord for those that maybe don't know Christ as their Savior 
Lord, I pray this morning they recognize and realize the eyewitness account of the apostles that they have right here in God's word. There's more than sufficient evidence. It's not a blind leap of faith to trust in Christ. And so, Father, for those that maybe have never trusted in you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Whether they need to respond by text message or they need to come forward this morning or maybe uh, maybe later on they, they need to uh, call or send a text. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that today is a day of salvation for them. That they will realize that, Lord, our faith is trustworthy because it's based upon eyewitness accounts of the apostles. That we have a firm foundation for our faith. And then secondly, Lord, I pray for, for those of us that know you. And we go through our life, and often we don't ask ourselves, is this really biblical? Can I really prove this according to Scripture? Because in reality, that's what we have. We have the apostles. It's like, this isn't, this isn't made up. This isn't a fable. This isn't a fairy tale. Everything we say is based upon God's word, based upon these eyewitness accounts, based upon the truth. And so, Lord, I pray in our life, when we do things, to be based upon the truth of the word of God, that we'd have sufficient evidence to back up what we're doing and why we're doing. May you be glorified in our lives. May we respond as we see fit, as you, as you promised this morning. Whether it's prayer, whether it's coming forward, whatever it might be, may we be willing to respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing.